Cooper Caffrey likes to play guitar at open mic nights in local taverns. He's developing his singing voice. He works a lot of hours at his job and is the kind of guy who will get up early on his day off to help out a friend. He is in a lot of ways the quintessential 20-year-old American kid, except in one life transformational way. He is a survivor of a school shooting. So people at work will read something on the internet about it and they'll be like, dude, did you get shot? And I'll lie and be like, no, that's not me. I don't have any issues speaking or thinking about the shooting, but it's not something that I go out of my way to talk about. So the barest of details. When he was 14, a friend pulled a pistol stolen from a relative and shot into the lunchroom of their rural Southern Ohio school. Caffrey was one of two students struck by gunfire. I took one bullet through the left side of my abdomen and I took one through my, like, just below my elbow on my left arm. Both boys survived, and Caffrey has mostly recovered from the physical injuries, except for the metal plate in his arm. But the other student, not so much. Caffrey makes the most of the life he was blessed to keep, his mother said via text. He doesn't want one horrific day to define him. So you might never know how he feels about the highly charged topic of guns in schools. But in June, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine signed into law a bill that reduced the training required for teachers to carry guns in schools from more than 700 hours to 24 hours. Among the states that mandate firearm training for school personnel who aren't police, Ohio is now tied with Wyoming for requiring the least training behind Florida, Texas, South Dakota, and Oklahoma. But in the circuitous world of state law, workarounds abound. On the books in Michigan and Minnesota, for example, are exceptions for people who simply have permission from a school principal. The revisions to the gun law are nearly the same as a controversial 2018 policy adopted by Madison Local District, where Caffrey was shot as an eighth grader. Several families, including Caffrey's, vigorously protested the law all the way to the Ohio Supreme Court, which last year ruled against the policy. But now, the new Ohio law allows fast-track gun training for teachers across the state if their school boards choose to do so. And so, Cooper Caffrey is speaking up again. I have younger siblings in school now, and the fact that they cannot be sure that their teacher is carrying a gun on any given day, it, it keeps me awake at night. I don't understand how a teacher could lead that dual-faceted existence of, okay, I'm teaching these kids in class now, but I'm also prepared to kill any one of them at any minute. It, it reminds me so much of like a prison guard mentality. This episode of the Ohio State University Inspire podcast explores the rural-urban divide of a new Ohio gun law that has pitted parents against school boards and administrators and how one survivor's outlook aligns with an Ohio State scholar who studies why America's schools are targeted for gun violence. I'm Robin Chenoweth. Carol Del Grosso is our audio engineer. Megan Beery is our student intern. Inspire is a production of the College of Education and Human Ecology. The federal government does not track school shootings, but a few watchdog groups and media outlets do. An ongoing analysis by the Washington Post shows that more than 311,000 children 
have experienced gun violence in schools since the 1999 Columbine shootings. Among those incidents, 558 were killed or injured, including teachers, administrators, and resource officers. Everyone agrees the threat is real. The approach to dealing with the problem is where people clash. Noel Arnold is Senior Associate Dean at Ohio State's College of Education and Human Ecology and an expert in school administration and urban and rural education. I asked Arnold why Ohio districts see solutions so differently. After the 24-hour training limit was voted upon and approved by the governor, all of the major urban districts voted against letting teachers carry guns, but some of the more rural schools are allowing it or already training their teachers. I found in these communities that their members operate from their own unique value systems based on their own place-focused needs and desires. And so there are some researchers that talk about sort of cultural norms in rural communities that may more closely align with independence and solving their own problems such as those around school safety. I'm certainly not a gun rights scholar. However, I am a scholar who's looked at school and community crisis. And in many ways, this safety in school issue mirrors some of the larger societal issues we're all trying to work out. And these same crises, unfortunately, spill over into schools. And so in my work with rural communities, there's been an independence there a more confidence in perhaps solving their own problems rather than having sort of quote-unquote outside influence on this type of problem solving. And they often overlap with what are the individual rights of the members in those communities and how those rights intersect with the school environment. Ohio State professor Brian Warnick, who studies why schools are targeted for acts of gun violence, agrees that the reasons why rural districts choose more often to arm teachers are nuanced. I think it's a mistake to kind of reduce this to just an outgrowth of the larger culture war. There might be reasons why rural schools feel more vulnerable. For one thing, a lot of school shootings have happened in rural communities rather than in, say, urban centers. And it is true that it takes longer for law enforcement to respond in a rural setting than it does in an urban setting. They're simply farther away. So there might be some legitimate concerns where they feel more vulnerable to school shooting incidents that might be might be driving this as well. But uh, I think the connection between gun culture and rural settings is, is certainly a part of it and playing a role in all of this. It's not that school shootings don't occur in urban schools. Far from it. According to a study by the U.S. Government Accountability Office, urban schools with high minority populations have more shootings overall. Black students experience school shootings at twice the rate of students who are not black. The difference is the kind of shootings different school environments experience. In urban schools, gun violence tends to be more one-on-one involving grievances between individuals. But most school-targeted shootings involve indiscriminate killing and usually occur in less diverse suburban and rural schools. These are the ones that tend to result in school policy changes like Ohio's revised gun law. Arnold, who trains principals, says teachers carrying guns opens up still more issues for which there might not be contingency plans. 
there's a lot of distress on the parts of principals on how to regulate this. If we allow this, how will we create policy around this? How will we make sure that the gun is locked up or safe? But then if the gun is locked up or safe, you know, were there an active shooter situation, can that gun even be easily gotten to? I find that principals are, again, having various types of advisory boards. They're certainly talking to parent groups, but that issue around the safety and how to regulate the use of this has been a big issue for principals. And frankly, they're trying to figure out what that would mean and what will their role as a principal be in sort of having oversight of this. A tracker by the Giffords Law Center details incidents where guns were left accessible to children in schools. It reads like this. Ingram, Texas. A school resource officer left a firearm unintended in the bathroom where it was found by a student. No shots fired. And this one in Sparta, Ohio. The district transportation director left her pistol in a small unlocked plastic case near her desk when she went to the restroom. Two first graders who were left alone in the office accessed the gun. Yeah, I mean, like, kids kids are curious. Sure. You're not really supposed to leave them in a classroom alone, but situ- situations sure. happen and the gun gets left. I mean, does the teacher carry the gun in? Do they carry it out with them? Does it stay in the classroom? There's just so many considerations. These are the kinds of questions that principals, superintendents, school board members are even grappling with. And there's a real tension, I think, just as an administrator, as a human being, and their own personal feelings around their rights to be safe and the rights of others in the school environment to be safe, but also, again, on how do we protect some of the most vulnerable people in society, which are children? How are we protecting them in schools? These are some of the questions that they're asking, and there are no easy answers. In my work, what I do is counsel them through asking some of these key questions and whether they've even thought about these key questions and whether a new policy or a new procedure will actually produce any unwanted consequences as opposed to some of those wanted impacts. What might be the impacts that you actually don't want if you institute a new kind of policy or procedure? One impact could be changing the relationship between teachers and students, says Warnick. A decent proportion of the shootings that happen in schools, it's one student against another. How does the teacher in that moment make the decision to pull the gun out and shoot one of the students? This is one of my overriding concerns about arming teachers. We can say that the mere presence of firearms in certain contexts creates feelings of of anxiety and, and fear. Some students will be comfortable with it and others won't, but it will increase this this fear and anxiety in students. But I'm also worried about how carrying a firearm changes the act of teaching. One of the things I study is how technologies in education change the educational situation, how the tools we use change how we think of ourselves, how we think of the activities that we're doing, 
and how they affect the relationships of those around us. The tools we use matter, right? I don't think it's so much that teachers will go around shooting students willy-nilly. I'm worried how bringing a gun with you every day, putting it in your backpack, putting it in your purse, strapping it on somehow, how does that change how you think about what you're going to do that day? How does it change how you see yourself as a teacher, your relationships with students? You would think of yourself, I'm arming up. It would cast students with this suspicious aura around them. It would decrease that relationship of caring and trust that is so essential to education because it would cast in teachers' minds classrooms as places of potential violence and students as potential shooters. Parents of color in particular worry that in a moment of doubt or fear, their children will be the ones to be shot. I asked Noelle Arnold about this. I've heard this in my own family. Certainly any fear is valid for the one who's holding it. However, families of color are confronted daily with the realities of gun violence and its intersection with racism, other issues of race. One only has to look at the history books or even current events to see some of this play out. This is the power of some community groups, particularly community groups of color, that are really holding communities and districts feet to the fire in terms of how are they going to protect against some of these things, particularly when a lot of schools and districts indicate that they have a mission and vision around safety, inclusiveness. Parents of color are saying, is my child included in your safety mission and your inclusive mission? And are you thinking about the the consequences that we see in society? How are you going to protect against those same consequences if they play out in the school? And these are some of the things that I think states and districts are going to have to grapple with. Cooper Caffrey said he felt a shift in the culture of his school after the board approved training for teachers. It was causing me a lot of stress because I knew one particular teacher that I had in my class rotation that was very vocal about wanting to be armed. And after this program was approved by the uh, school board, I, I felt that he most likely was carrying in a class that I was in. And I was not comfortable with that. Could you see the gun? I could not, but he was, he would wear outfits that you couldn't rule it out, but you couldn't be sure that, you know what I mean? Yeah. But you were just, Generally uncomfortable with the idea that he might be, right? Yeah, or even if he didn't have it on him, the, it being in his desk arguably is worse because it's not locked and a student could just walk up to his desk and take it out. Like, And if it's going to be in a safe, you know, then I don't even know. The district's policy allowed 10 staffers to carry weapons on campus if they received 24 hours of gun training and eight hours of concealed carry license training. Like the newly revised state law, just who carried the guns was not public record. So Caffrey and families had no real way of knowing. Implementing the policy in Madison Township schools served as a sort of petri dish for what might now follow in Ohio. But the shooting months before also continues to reverberate through the community. 17 months after Caffrey was shot in his lunchroom, 17 students were killed by a gunman at the gunman's former high school in Parkland, Florida. Caffrey, then a freshman, 
and 42 students participated in the National School Walkout Day in solidarity with Parkland students. They all received an in-school detention. Media and social media blew up, thrusting the school into the limelight once again. I wasn't planning on walking out. I was going to sit in my class and do my schoolwork. And our principal and superintendent comes on the loudspeaker and says, anybody that is participating in the national school walkout will be subject to disciplinary action. And it struck me like there was a shooting here. And you're, you're really going to tell people that they can't express some sort of sentiment about gun violence because you have your own political agenda? Really? So in that moment, I got out of my desk and I, I walked out the door. And the resource officer and the assistant principal stopped and confronted me. And they were like, are you really going to make this difficult for us? I was like, I don't know. Do you think the kids at Parkland had it easy? A month later, the school board introduced the new gun policy. It wasn't long before Caffrey's family decided to move from the district. If the shooting had pulled a community together, this was driving some of them apart. I asked Caffrey what he thought would have happened if the situation were flipped. So if the teachers in that school had been armed, what do you think would have happened that day? The, the absolute same thing, the same exact thing. We were in the cafeteria, so there were no teachers there. If a teacher had been armed, worst case scenario, a teacher would have heard the gunshots and pulled a gun out and fired prematurely and caused property damage or additional injury. People don't understand about these incidents, these active shooting incidents. They think it's like a movie. It's this drawn, drawn out 15 minute scene where, you know, the shooter pulls it out and yells something scary and then walks around like, no, the shooting was done in about three seconds. Bang, 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 bang. And then he's gone. There was, no, there was no time for anybody to react. To expect a teacher to be able to go from teaching a class to I'm fighting an active shooter in a matter of seconds, I think is unrealistic. It's not a, a good solution to the problem. To reiterate, I don't think that anything would have been different, at least in my shooting, had the teachers been armed. I think the only thing it could have done is made things worse. Across the United States, Districts spent an estimated $3.1 billion on school security in 2021. Bulletproof glass, locks, cameras, metal detectors. They spent billions more on armed resource officers. But for all that, research shows it's not working. The overwhelming voice of the research says that layering these security technologies one on top of another in our school environments actually does not make schools safer. It does not decrease levels of violence. It sometimes moves the violence to to different places. Like to sporting events, buses, or the school parking lot. But it doesn't make schools safer. The, The evidence is pretty clear about that. Will guns in teachers' hands help to stop an active shooter? As a scholar, I want to turn to the research. There's a lot of different ways to ask that question. You could ask, you know, does arming teachers or other uh, school staff, does that make schools safer in the sense of preventing school shootings? It's such a new phenomenon, I think, that we simply don't know. There is some research on whether having armed school resource officers serves to prevent school shootings or stop school shootings. And here the evidence seems to be no, that having armed law enforcement in schools does not prevent or stop school shootings. Uvalde, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, these all had armed uh, school resource officers and it was not successful in, in preventing the carnage that ensued. 
it's hard to grapple with the emotions of the moment, even for professionals. Professionals who uh, are trained in how to handle the situation and perhaps uh, know what they should be doing, even in those situations, nothing seems to happen as we expect. And I, I guess that highlights all the more why it's incredibly far-fetched to, to think of teachers with so little training being able to navigate such situations. So where does this leave us? Warnick has chosen to focus his work on understanding the core of the problem. After the Sandy Hook shootings, he began looking closely at the people who perpetrate school shootings. I wanted to try to think about this more deeply. I wanted to try to understand uh, why these things happened. Why are schools chosen to be places of, of mass violence? What is it about the meaning of education of, or schooling in America uh, that seems to lend itself uh, to, these, to these incidents? I mean, you, you can think of a lot of places where mass violence could occur. It could occur in, in shopping malls. It could occur in movie theaters. It does sometimes. But why are schools so often chosen as venues for violence? So that was the question that led me to think more deeply about school shootings. He and his fellow researchers immersed themselves in the tragic stories surrounding American school shooters. It was difficult to make generalizations, they wrote. Some were bullied. Others were bullies themselves. Some had dysfunctional homes. Others did not. Some had quarrels with specific people in the school. All had easy access to firearms and saw the school as an appropriate place to use them. Schools are sometimes understood as places of coercion and violence. They're often places where we force kids to do things against their will. They're places where they're, they're punished, uh, sometimes even with physical punishment. You know, when schools are like this, when they're coercive, they kind of send the message that these are places where force is appropriate. There tends to be this common denominator. There, there's a lot of young men who are angry. Yes, uh, often male, often suburban, often white. So there, there are elements of kind of thwarted masculinity in all of this uh, as well. Young men are expected to be athletes, to win uh, dates and sexual success. And when they're not able to achieve that, that resentment sort of builds up and can, can explode sometimes in school shootings. Warnick and other researchers call this the status tournament of adolescence. On a roll for some kids, remedial classes for others. Varsity team status for some, others don't make the team at all. We sort kids into winners and to losers. We crown kings and queens of prom events. And th this lends itself to a certain sort of resentment directed at the school itself by some students. Of course, plenty of kids learn to cope with rejection. They move on. The question is, why? What do they have that the shooters need to cope? The boy who shot Caffrey told investigators that he was always in trouble over his poor grades, that his home life was troubled, and that he didn't feel his family accepted him. He overdosed on Ativan the day of the shootings. The handgun he took from a relative was not secured. No one even missed it until it was too late. Could the school have done something more? Brian Warnick. We need to turn away from looking just at schools as being the solution to school shootings and take a hard look at ourselves 
and try to get the political will and courage to do something in our larger society about the, the prevalence of firearms and about the mental health issues. And only then will we make our schools safe. There are things we can do in schools, but they're often not what we think about. They have to do with relationships and building bridges and, and watching out for students rather than building up schools as fortresses. Increasing the mental health resources that we have in schools, the counseling staff, so that we're able to, to better care for students who might be in trouble or uh, who are suffering from various mental health issues. Really make schools into communities of trust where students feel like they have good relationships with teachers and other school staff, where, where students feel like they can uh, turn to trusted adults if they sense that something is going wrong with one of their peers. We need to get real here. If we're gonna try to increase school safety, it's gotta be a multi-pronged effort and not just this target hardening approach, which you so often see. Though he was one of 558 since Columbine who'd been shot in a school, Cooper Caffrey might be the only one, or among a distinct few, who was able to confront his shooter with grace after the fact. He read a statement at the boys' sentencing. We all sat around at wrestling tournaments and ate donuts and listened to music. We were gonna go fishing this summer with my dad. I want you to know that I forgive you. People think that's crazy and keep telling me I should be mad and I have a right to be mad, but I'm not. It hurts that my friend would choose to hurt all these people. It's hard to watch the community react to this. The boy who shot him wasn't the friend he knew, Caffrey said. That frightened kid pointing the gun at him, that was somebody else. I asked Caffrey his motivation for reading the letter. I don't see what the demonization of a 13 or 14 year old boy does to fix any situation. So, I mean, at the end of the day, he is a human. No matter how horrific what he's done is, he's a human being and putting him in a box and checking off that he's evil is not going to help prevent this in the future. It's not going to help us understand it now. So what's the point? Some might say this was a tragedy where grace could be offered. No one died. No one lost a child or a sibling. But in the aftermath of a crisis, Cooper Caffrey made people see the humanity in a boy who could have easily killed him. It's what the scholarship of Brian Warnick and other researchers implores us to do. So that the next time, just maybe, the frustration and anger of another troubled young man doesn't find expression in still another tragedy.